0: Welcome back to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. We are currently in a series from the book of 2 Samuel. We trust you will enjoy today's message as an encouragement to your faith. Let's listen now to Kimber. One of the reasons I believe that God gave us the narrative text, and that is the uh, uh, scripture, so much of it, especially in the Old Testament, is in story form. Jesus Christ tells lots of stories in the Gospels, the book of Acts is lots, but There is the there is clearly uh, like an artist taking a picture and starting to paint. So does the writer, inspired by God, paint a picture for us of real life and of the tensions of real life? For instance, in this section that we're in today, starting in 1941 and going on through 20 of the 20th chapter, you have conflict, tension. It's very grisly. In fact, I will just warn you right now that this would be rated R. I am sure if this was to be played out on a movie thing a screen, this is what it would be. It would be an R-rated movie. And that the, the, and that there is so much of this in the Old Testament, but it, again, it is very realistic. And the setting for this chapter, very unromantically, if I may show you a map, to help you understand what is happening. And that is that here, in this day, David was king in Jerusalem. This is the setting. Absalom, his son, seized power by going down to Hebron announcing himself as king. David is on the run and crosses the river. In many of these chapters now, because of David's sin, this is all brought about because of a sin. David crosses the Jordan River, goes up to Mahanaim, and because Absalom waited by not listening to Ahithophel's advice, when they did finally gather the armies and come to fight, David's men wins. Absalom dies a very humiliating death as his head gets caught in a tree. Now, uh, the last chapter we were left off, the war is over, and rumors go all around Israel. How come David isn't our king? Let's bring him back. And so David asked the men of Jerusalem and around Judah, Hey, will you bring me back? And they say yes. And so David comes, and now we have this scene. We had this grand leaving, and now we have an even grander scene of David coming back and crossing the Jordan and people greeting him and meeting him, and he's about to go back to his re-coronation. That is what is happening now in chapters 19 and 20. He's coming back for his re Now, the party does not last long. Coming here should have been an exciting time. But the party does not last long. Look at chapter 19 and verse 41. Follow along as I read. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. And besides, we have a greater claim on David than you have. So why do you treat us with contempt? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah responded even more harshly than the men of Israel. So the king's re-coronation party or his coming back party has really been sort of ruined because what you have is this argument. Now you'll notice what happens and this map will help you understand it a little bit more um, for you to notice this. Here circled are the regions or the areas where the 12 tribes lived. Now if you count those circles you'll see 13 and that's because Manasseh was divided on either side of the Jordan River. But here were the tribes. Now this is what made up Israel when they entered the land many years before. Now please notice that Here is Judah, and notice Judah being close to Jerusalem in this area. These are the men that both went with Absalom and also the men that asked David to come back. And so when David is over here, and all of of Israel, all of these tribes are saying, how come David isn't our leader? He's the guy that killed Goliath. He's the one that beat the Philistines. How come we don't have him? David doesn't want to come back until these men that had betrayed him ask him. And so when they do, there's this special party crossing the river right here in Gilgal. As they cross, it's the men of Judah that go up and get him and bring him across. And the other tribes were left out. So just as he crosses, probably somewhere in Gilgal, he has not gotten to Jerusalem yet. We know that from the text, you'll see. The men of Israel, they all get down there a little bit late from this big celebration, and no doubt there was probably a big party going on. And at this party, in some kind of setting where the leaders could all be together, the men of Israel, that is the ten tribes to the north, the men of the others that they're arguing with are the tribes of Judah and Simeon. And It's these guys against these guys. And they ask this question. Hey, how come you didn't invite us to the party? How come you didn't let us bring him across? To which the men of Judah, that is this group down here, they answer back uh, very harshly. As you can see in verse 42, the men of Judah answer the men of Israel. We did this because we're closely related to the king. Hey, he's one of us. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's one of us. And besides, what are you mad about? Did we do anything wrong? Did we even eat his food? Come on, you can still eat his food if that's what you're asking. In other words, they're accusing him. They're just caring about not getting in on the party. They're saying, well, this doesn't really settle. These are rough and tough men. Look at verse 43. The men of Israel, that's these 10 guys to the north, the 10 tribes to the north. answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. In other words, they, they they had said that we were closer because he was from Judah. Yeah, we've got action number 10 to 2. We have a greater claim on David than you have. So why do you treat us with contempt? And by the way, weren't we first? To bring him back? Wasn't it our idea? David, ask David. And, and you get this idea, David's being very passive here. This shows us several things, friends. This shows us why Joab was so concerned that once Absalom was dead, David got off his crying horse and got back to doing something, because anybody could just come and now throw uh, leadership over Israel, because there, there was it was a very odd time. There's no leader in Israel. And as they're coming back, now there's this big argument, because one group feels like they've been left out. Well, The men of Judah won the argument. The writer says that. The last phrase of verse 43, the men of Judah responded even more harshly than the men of Israel. Don't think that this was some kind of polite political debate like you've seen between Clinton and Dole. It's nothing like that. These were harsh words in which you see these guys going after each other and really attacking each other, and this is a very scary time. Civil war could break out. By the way, this is the kind of problem that's going to lead to the civil war after Solomon is done being king and Rehoboam and Jeroboam take over the kingship. Now, Having said that, notice what happens next. In the middle of this party, it even gets worse. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no pardon, Jesse's son. Every man to his own O Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Berkai. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So during this battle, please notice something. A guy by the name of Sheba, he is there, and notice he's from Benjamin. Now, isn't that interesting? Where was the last king from? That is, Saul, who reigned for 40 years. He was from Benjamin. Where was Shimei from, the one that cursed David to his face? He was from Benjamin. Where was a tribe that was obviously against David becoming king, even though David had been so merciful on Saul? It was the people of Benjamin. And so this guy from Benjamin, right in the middle of this big argument, the trumpets blow, and everyone just stops. And they look, and he goes, ah, men of Israel, that's these ten guys to the north, let's forget this old guy, you don't have anything to do with him, let's go. And they take off. And now we've got a real problem, you have got another division, we just got done with getting rid of Absalom, and now we've got another division with this guy named Sheba. These are discouraging times. So what happens next? Well, I want you to see... In verse 3, David continues to make his way back towards Jerusalem. All this took place right there. Let's go to verse 3 and see what happens. It says in verse 3, When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them but did not lie with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. And this is, if you all know the story... Absalom, to really put the final nail in the coffin, slept with his father's concubines on the roof in front of everybody, the very roof that David had looked at Bathsheba from. Now, he goes back, and the first thing he does is put these guys, these ten ladies, I should say, under confinement, and they can't do anything. The rest of their lives, they basically live in prison. Just a sort of eerie comment in the middle of this chapter. Now look at verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa... Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. Now, everybody, please listen. If you're new here, it's going to take you a while to catch up. Who is Amasa? Amasa was the leading general in Absalom's army. But Absalom's army lost. And so Joab killed Absalom. Joab was the head of David's army. David got so mad at him for killing Joab that part of the agreement of him coming back is that Amasa now becomes the head of the armies of Israel. So now Amasa, Absalom's old leader, is now back in Jerusalem, and David says, look, we've got to do something about this Sheba guy, because the reason I'm back here is because Absalom gave me a few days to breathe and get settled. If we give him some time, we're in bigger trouble. We've got to do something quick. So he says to Amasa, go around Judah and get all the men up. We're going to war. Well, look what happens, verse 5. When Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. He gave him three days, by the way. He doesn't come back. So David says to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Burkari, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. David, by the way, is really nervous. David says, Look, this guy is going to be more dangerous than Absalom. We've got to do something quick. Where in the world is that Amasa guy? I don't know where he is. You go. And so right away, Abishai, who's Abishai? Abishai was one of David's three generals. When David was over fighting from Mahanaim across the river, that was one of his top men. It was Joab and Abishai and Hushai, if you can remember. Well, there it is. There's, there's Abishai. And so he's there, and he says, I don't know where this Amasa guy is. Go! And so he goes to battle. Now, watch what happens next, starting in verse 7. Very interesting development. It says, so Joab's men and the Karathites and the Pelothites, those are mercenaries from other countries, they were the ones that went with David all the time, if you can remember. And all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Berkri. Now, here is what's going on, everybody. This is a new map for you to see. Here, I want you to notice, is Jerusalem. And now you can see where Amasa, don't read these words or you'll know what's going to happen in the story, so don't look at that. But Or up there, you'll see something else too up there, don't look. But anyway, look, I want you to see that Amasa went down into this area of Judah and was supposed to recruit an army within three days. He doesn't come back in time. David is sitting there going, Doggone it, they gave me time. That's how come I'm back? We got to do something. So he sends Abishai out and he says, Go get him. Their armies leave and the first stop is Gibeon and all the troops seem to rest by this great rock. It would be a place where they, a well known place, they are all seem to rest right there. And while they're there, look what happens in verse 8. It says this While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa that's the guy that's ahead of the Israel armies of, of David, came to meet them. Okay. Now, get this scene. is down here looking for men. He doesn't come back in time, so they leave. Right after they leave, Amasa comes, and he goes chasing after them with all the men that he's recruited. And when they get there at this great rock, now watch what happens. Joab was wearing his military tunic. Who was Joab? The old leader of David's armies who's been dethroned. He was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it. At his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of his sheath. Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground without being stabbed again. Amasa died. Well, let me explain this to you. Okay? This is really rather interesting, and I, again, it's right out of the scriptures. I just want to be very honest. This is what happened. Joab was a great warrior, and Joab is there, and he sees a mass. And now, you have to realize, everybody, there was tension here. Here you have the former general versus the new general. And Joab is there, and here's Joab, the guy that's the well-known army fighter for Israel. And when he sees Amasa coming, you get the idea, since Amasa lost with Absalom, and since Amasa took more than three days, you get the idea that Amasa wasn't that great of a leader. So Amasa comes storming back in, trying to catch up, because he's the leader. He's probably a little bit embarrassed, and he comes chasing up to the troops. And here's what happened. Joab looks at him. And as he goes, Joab was such a good warrior that they knew, they knew how to work that dagger perfectly. And accidentally, on purpose, he lets the dagger fall on the ground. This would be something that would happen maybe once a day or so. You know, every so often, soldiers, because of the way they had their daggers, they would fall out and they would just pick it up. And so as the master comes to meet him, he says, dear brother, how are you? And just then, his dagger falls on the ground. Now, please notice, he picks it up with his left hand. Now, a soldier fought with his right hand. There were 600 men in Israel that were left-handed. They could hit a rabbit and without ever missing. But generally, all the scriptures that talk about let my right hand not forget its cunning and the right eye and the right hand because soldiers fought with their right hands. And so Amasa, even though he's a general, looks at Joab, who's one of his subjects, basically in this case, and sees him picking up the dagger with his left hand, and and Joe makes it all look so accidental. It makes you look like, oh, you know, this was just an accident, and now you get up, and he goes, how are you? And he preaches up with his right hand and takes him by the beard. And he gives him a very warm greeting, and he wants to kiss him, much like Judas Iscariot kissed Jesus. But instead of giving him a kiss, he grabs him by the beard, brings his head forward, brings up his left hand, gets him in the intestines, and rips him right up the center. Now, you say, man, that's gross, Kim. Why are you telling us this This is God's holy word? That's what it says right there, all right? That's what it says. Notice, it says, particularly in the text, notice verse 10, Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand because he had it in his left hand. And Joab plunged into his belly, his intestines spilled out on the ground. And notice what it says, without being stabbed again. Now, I just think this is rather humorous. Not, not, Not really humorous, but rather interesting humorous. is." that these guys all seem to have an ego about how many times it took to stab somebody. If you can remember, Abishai, who has to be right there, says to David concerning Shimei, Oh, let me take this dead dog out. Believe me, I won't have to use my sword twice. Remember that? And here the text says it only happened, to only had to do it once. So there's just something about this theme. The, 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 it's, a, it's a gory scene, but you see this happening. Now notice the last part of verse 10. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Berkrai. So what happens is, all of this takes place in Gibeon. Now off they go, heading out. But you've got to remember, Amasa brought a bunch of men with him. So a bunch of men that Amasa are still behind, and the two leaders, Joab and Abishai, take off after Sheba up in this direction. So watch what happens when all of these men following Amasa, who is now dead, watch what happens when they see come on the scene. Look at verse 11. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa. There's Amasa dead with his intestines spilled out. Whoever favors Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and a man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, all the men went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Berkri. Now here's what happens. Joab is so organized that Joab says... Hey, he immediately gets one of his good men to stand right beside the body, and he goes, you make an announcement. This guy's laying dead. This is their general. All these guys have been recruited by Amasa. He says, you make this announcement. If you're for David, if you're for Joab, you follow on. And so he stands there, but the the, the soldier notices that all of these troops that Amasa had recruited, they all stop, and it's slowing the whole process down. And David had given the command, make haste, man. Go get the Sheba. Wipe him out. And so there he is standing there and he says hey we can't have everybody keep stopping and looking at this guy so they just take him and they drag him off to the side and they cover him up now I think that is very significant you know why consider this who are the two men that tried to overthrow David Absalom and who else this guy right I mean Sheba, all right now please understand this that both of these guys' well, gonna be you're gonna see all three guys and in a very very bloody bath but I gotten ahead of myself let me finish let me let's keep going. Go on, then, if you would, to verse 14. And I want to show you something on the map here. Verse 14 says this. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Makah and through the entire region of the Benarites who gathered together and followed him. Now, here's where Sheba goes. Sheba realizes, I think, that you basically have grabbed a bear by the beard or something. I mean, you, you, all of Israel just got done saying, Hey, isn't David the one that was our hero? And then all of a sudden, they all know that Absalom's been dead. Now, this guy had the gall right in front of David to say, we ought to all overthrow David. And notice how far he goes. He must be scared because he's running, 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 running. He goes as far north as you can go in Israel. So here he is, way up here in the far north of Israel. Now, they're pursuing all of this way. And as they get up there, the scene now takes us to what happens. Look at verse 15. It says this. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel beth Makah. They built a siege ramp up to the city, and it stood against the outer fortifications, where they were battering the wall to bring it down. So here's the, here's the scene, and this is typical of what happened in those days. Any of you ever been to um, Masada in Israel, you can know that gigantic, big siege ramp that they built. In those days, if you would picture this as being the city wall, the outside of the city wall, but imagine it being way high, some 30 or 35 feet up. Then there would be a big, long area where people could walk back and forth and dump down picture, pictures of tar and throw rocks down if, if people tried to attack. And so then you go like this. you got to realize on this side of the wall is the inside of the city. Now, with that being the case, please understand this, that outside of this wall, the only way you could get in is to build a siege ramp, a gentle slope, a gentle slope so you could carry things up, like big battering rams. And the men would take the battering rams up the gentle slope, and fighting off people that would be throwing sticks down at them, they would hit the top of the wall and try to knock down the wall so that they could get into the city. Now, this is the scene that's going on at this time. Now, now watch what happens. Watch carefully what happens in verse 17 then. It says this, right while this is going on, and by the way, you've got to realize, to be in that city, it was terrifying. Everyone kept giving reports, how big is the siege ramp? For instance, in Masada, do you know how come they let them build that siege ramp? I mean, in Masada, it's awesome. If those of you that go, you're not going to believe it. But that siege ramp is huge. You know why? Because the people that overthrow Israel used Israelites to build the siege ramp. And very possibly, that's what they would do in this day. The soldiers would get people from that town to build the siege ramp so your own town folk wouldn't drop the rocks on your own people. So you can't, you can't win either way. They build the siege ramp, then they come and get you. Well, watch what happens. In the middle of all this, in this terrifying scene, suddenly someone comes to be a hero. A heroine, in this case. Look at verse 17. A wise woman, verse 16. A wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen. And the guy stopped building the siege ramp. All of a sudden, over the top, just picture this woman's head picking up over the, pitching over the top of the wall. Hey, everybody, listen to me. Where's Joab? Tell him. I got to speak to him. So they got Joab, and verse 17. He went toward her, and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. And she said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, verse 18. Long ago, they used to say, get your answer at Abel, and that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Now this woman realizes, and here you got, here you got a very, very interesting case. This is the second time in six chapters that a wise woman now comes to the scene to help solve the problem. Remember back in chapter 14, Joab got a wise woman from Tekoa. Remember her? So here we are again. And this woman comes to the scene, and she goes, look, there was a saying, if you want an answer, get it at Abel. You know what that meant? That was a proverb of the day that everyone knew. And that is, the people in Abel, just like we know, we, say, we, we make jokes about people from Kentucky, and people from Kentucky make jokes about people in Indiana, and all that kind of stuff. Well, in that day, the people from this town of Abel were considered wise. And they would say this, do you want a good answer? Go to Abel. They've got wise people there. And so she says, why are you going to do it? You're wiping out the Lord's inheritance. What are you doing attacking us? We're one of you. And then she gives a little bit of a hint. This woman was really full of wisdom. She gives a little bit of a hint. She says, by the way, we've mothered many other towns, meaning if you tangle with us, you're going to have to tangle with more of Israel. Well, she got Joab's attention in a very big way because notice what Joab says. He's very emotional in verse 20 when he says this. Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Burkri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one, and I will withdraw from the city. Now, this is something very interesting. In those days, you could have one guy die. Absalom dies, the war's over. If David would have died, the war would have been over. Here's the revolter, Sheba. If he dies, the war's over. Everybody would go back. That's interesting. We don't fight wars like that anymore. But that's how they would have. Now, stop and think about this. This woman not only was creative, but this woman also carried a big stick in that town. Because she had authority. Because I want you to notice this response. Look at the last part of verse 21. He says, hand over Sheba, and notice what she says. His head will be thrown over to you from the wall. She didn't have to go have some committee meeting. So this woman was a leader. And she says, you need, well, who do you want? Sheba? Oh, Sheba's causing trouble. Get ready. Get your best pump returner out, because here comes his head flying over the wall. Okay? Here it comes. Now watch. Verse 22. The woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Berkri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home, and Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Very interesting here. Listen. The last time you saw a head being cut off and carried around was Goliath, and David was doing it. Now you've got Sheba's being carried around and you get the impression that Joab takes the head back. For instance, all of a sudden they say, here, get ready, here comes the head, here comes the head over, the guys catch it, they have to pull it up and examine, it. is this really Sheba? Yeah, I remember that mole on his left ear. Okay, that's him. By the that, way, that's how it had to happen, that's just the facts. So, okay, they've got it. Everyone just disperses, parties, or I mean, the war's over, go home. They do it. So, the chapter ends very unusually. Look at verse 23. Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaniah, son of Joadiah, was over the Kerathites and the Pelothites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahadud, or Ahadud, or Halad, or whatever, was recorder. Sheba was secretary. Zadok and Abithar were priests. Nero, the Jarite, was David's priest. That's the story. Now, you've seen this verse week after week. I'll show you one more time, just so you don't forget it. Everything that was written in the past, Paul says, was written to teach us. Everything. That includes the contents of 2 Samuel 19 and 20. It's supposed to give us endurance and encouragement. Second Timothy says it's supposed to warn us, it's supposed to help us. Now, I want to just take you back through the story again and tell you about the struggle that I have. These have been hard chapters. It's been a wearisome. I mean, back when we were in, early in 1 Samuel, when he was killing Goliath and there was, and there was all these troubles with Saul after him, the application points were so easy. But here, these are difficult. The goal of the text, by the way, it's not just that you read the text and you get an idea like, oh, hey, you know, you should never, you know, do this or that, and just come up with some little cheap point. There's two rules of hermeneutics that we need to follow. Number one is, there should always be a theocentric point. And that is, God should always be the center. This is the book of Revelation. The Bible comes from heaven to us. It's it's spoken out to us to give us the way of life. There's another equal goal that runs parallel with theocentric God, and what, what do we learn about God, and that is a redemptive purpose. And you should really be able to ask out of any chapter of the Bible, where is Jesus Christ in this chapter? Now... For instance, there's sometimes you see it from a side view. For instance, last week we considered the fickleness of man. And when you see the fickleness and the foolishness, the folly of man, you go, oh, no wonder we need a Savior. We certainly can't trust in man. And it points us to a need of one greater than ourselves. And there are many other ways to look at it, and I'm sure I'm not the best at seeing all of those. But I, I do want you to know that there are also some minor subpoints in the passage that which we can pick up a lot of wisdom. You could actually develop them even even to, even to say more, I'm sure. And I want to, first off, go over a few minor points and then get to the two major ones. For instance, this passage teaches us about the role of women. Now, in newcomer's class this morning, we had a good discussion about women and their place in the church and all that, the place of men and all that. We talked about it. But this really tells us something, because for the second time, you've got what the Scripture says is a wise woman. And a wise woman is used to save the day. Not only that, but this writer also brings Abigail out in the first Samuel, chapter 25, same book. Remember, it was all one book. And Abigail's the big hero of the day, in which she solves a big problem by rebuking David. And David says, oh, blessed be the Lord for your sake. And so here you've got this idea often when you read the Bible, like women were always in the background never doing anything. But here you see a woman who takes charge. You don't see a man sticking his head over the edge. You see a woman, and she was a wise woman, the scripture says, and she solves the problem. She goes, what is it? Why are you attacking us? And she puts the the onus on Joab to see what's going on, and as soon as he sees it, he says, hey. And she goes, oh, you want his head? I'll get his head. And there goes the head. Quiet. Right? So she had authority and influence. I think this also tells us something about the importance of being creative and solution oriented. And that is, instead of just letting the thing happen and letting the wall come down, she says, Somebody better do something. There didn't seem to be a man enough in the town to do anything. So this woman goes. But this also tells us, this is just a little itty side point, and we can't spend time on it. But a side point is this. How about when troubles are really bad, you got an army besieging your city, knocking down your walls, that instead of just saying, Well, here we go. You can be creatively solution-oriented in marriage, at work, in business, in dealing with your kids. This is so important. People say, give me nine steps to this. There's not always nine steps. You need to have the wisdom from above to be creative for that moment. That's what wisdom is. And so we need to be creative and solution-oriented in dealing with difficult situations. Please understand, this is not the enemies of Israel against Israel. This is God's people against God's people. And they're having a fight. And a woman saves the day, or more Israelites would have been dead. I think it's also an interesting point. I just think I got to bring it out. In our society, you can never get this too much about self-control, city walls, and Proverbs. I wonder how much Solomon writes of the Proverbs does he get from learning these stories about his dad and about what happened with his dad's army. Because the Bible says this. Listen, the Bible says, very, very importantly, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. And in those days, the the fact that they had to build this siege ramp, it took some time, and the city was saved because of the creative woman. But what I want you to see is, friends, if there hadn't been walls, they would have just run right into it. And the Bible says if you lack self-control, you're like a city in Old Testament times without walls. In other words, you're defenseless. You just give in to your hormones. You just give in to every little craving your heart desires. Every time there's a little bit of thing, you just give in to it. You're defenseless. And the Bible calls people to practice self-control. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. Now, this fourth point, we are now zeroing in on what really is major about this chapter. And i just—I got to tell you, it, 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 there has not really been a tremendous amount of joy in my heart in coming up with this fourth point. And as I say to you, if you all sort of groan, and if this seems to have just been pastoring, you're just whipping us, I fully understand. But here's the fourth point the influence of David's sin is still alive and agonizing. My friends, I, I, I am so glad. I'm going to show you a quote in a, in a minute by Joyce Baldwin, a woman writer, one of the best commentaries I read during this entire series. Joyce Baldwin, and I want you to know something. She helped me so much. When I read what she said, I went, yes, because for about the last five weeks, it's been a groaning process to study this text because basically David sins in chapter 11 and the rest of 11... All of 12, all of 13, all of 14, all of 15, all of 16, all of 17, all of 18, all of 19, and now all of 20 is really a result of his sin. And it's the consequences of living in sin. Still, after years have gone by now, and still David is agonizing. Think, for instance, in this chapter. Think of the ten concubines. They get basically put in prison the rest of their lives. In meditation upon this, I thought, certainly many of them, you became a concubine about the age of 13 or 14. It was a very possibility back in those days. So some of these girls may have lived to be 70 or 80 or 90 years old way into Solomon's reign or possibly into Jeroboam's reign. And you know what? Stop and think about it. There was a day when there was a special house assigned for these concubines that was, they were, they were confined. They were in prison. They lived out their days in prison. What did they ever do? They didn't do anything. It was David's sin, and now because Absalom sinned against him, these women, in other words, the story still goes on. Other people are affected. Let me ask you this: why is it that Uriah or Joab did not listen to David about his son or about anybody else? Why does Joab go around killing everybody? Because he lost respect for David when David said, kill Uriah? What do you see the influence as they go on and on? Do you know that this ends the second major portion of David's reign? That's why the writer puts in there who was in the cabinet at the time, and he goes through the cabinet, and he tells you here was who was in charge and who wasn't. It's because this ends the second major section. And I want you to see something that is very important here. If we would just have ended after the first ten chapters of Second Samuel, which seems long ago to me, we all would seem well, and that covers many years, and you basically would say, well, David was a good king, wasn't he? But now you see that the writer takes equal amount of time. Look, equal. these are the good years. Equal amount of space is given. Long chapter after chapter is given. It's, there's a heaviness to it. I was so glad to realize there's, there's more direct speech in this, and you start to think, is this ever going to end? And you sit there and you go, is this ever going to end? And I'm just going to think, oh, Lord, give me something else to say to these people. But you know what the Lord wants me to say to you this morning? The wages of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's not worth living in sin. Don't do it. Before you contemplate sin, maybe you can remember God in his gracious wisdom took a gigantic section of, of Scripture just to tell us about a few years. Notice the top ones cover many, many years, like 30 or 40. These just cover a few anywhere from three to five. But in these three to five years, all of those chapters are given to it. Why? Because a loving God sends revelation from heaven. He wants you to know that the way of the transgressor is hard and that there are great consequences to your sin not to give in to them. (laughs) Listen to what Joyce Baldwin writes. I'm going to show you a quote by her in just a second, but listen to this. Affairs of state are shown to be closely bound up with personal relationships, sinful liaisons, have repercussions that rebound far beyond the private lives of the individuals concerned. At the same time, David, though forgiven by God, found himself handicapped by his own past and unable to discipline others. Moreover, his own children never came to terms with what his father had done. In other words, the narrator has invited the reader to pay particular attention to the social and psychological aftermath of adultery, as well as to the obvious fulfillment of God's judgments. And she goes on to say this. Look it. The narrative has a didactic quality about it. It transmits profound wisdom. You know, I really think there's just something to be said here. People have said, Kim, do we need to cover every single verse in Samuel? And people say, can't you just sort of do the story... And I really believe that part of our commitment to expository preaching, if there is this heaviness does settle in on the congregation, it's supposed to be there by God if we're committed to following the text. And I think that if we just jump around or just cover what we want, we're going to be in trouble. And I think what you see is the narrative art. What she is saying is the writer is inspired by God, and he's painting a picture. And it's like looking at a picture that's, that's hard to look at at times. But he's painting this picture, and it transmits profound wisdom. And to concentrate on the historical aspect, she's talking there about just the first ten years. And therefore, and to stop there and to miss the point of the book, we are meant to find in his, his guidance to live by, a clue to the deceptions that distort our understanding of what is beneficial and what ought to be done. In other words, these chapters, like many more, are meant to be a lamp to my feet and a light to our path. And they're supposed to tell us, and God takes great time to tell us, look, that is this is the case. All of this happens, it's very ugly, it's very bad, it's very hard, but that's what happens when people disregard God's word. In other words, if you can make it like this, the warning on the cigarette package, you can say it like this. Warning, the great physician has said that the violation of God's holy word will ruin your life and the lives of others. It's sort of like secondhand smoke. Again, think of the ten concubines and all the others. You cannot say that when you sin, you just can keep it to yourself. It has a gigantic influence upon our nation. I I, I do believe, by the way, I'd like to just add a side note here. I do believe with all of my heart that we should be very careful in, in how we talk about the leaders put over us, and you know that I'm not one for poking fun, especially at someone that has been given the, the authority that God has given to Bill Clinton. And if you don't think God has given him Bill Clinton the authority, you're wrong. No authority is given except by God, the scripture says. But I do want to say, we've, we must teach our kids, when they hear stories about adulteries and affairs, and it's public, and no one even cares, they just want to know if we can keep our money in our pockets. We do need to tell our kids it is wrong. There are repercussions. And you may be seeing a generation of immorality burst out even more than before when we realize it's okay for the president to be that way, if that's indeed the case. And I say that to you as carefully as I can. And I'd like to make one other thing, just to exalt Christ in this. You take chapter 11, and David's on the roof, and he sins. And then you've got all of 11, all of 12, and onwards, as I said, and it's monotonous, and it's grinding, and it's heavy. But you just see the influence of sin But I want you all to know there's another side to the story. And that is Romans 5 says, By one man's sin entered into the world, but by another man's obedience righteousness comes. And I want you to remember that we can look at David and we can remember this grueling aspect of a sin, but you can also look to Jesus Christ, who's, because of what he did on the cross of Christ for us, because he obeyed in the Garden of Gethsemane, because he did not give in to his emotions and his desires as David gave in. That we have now righteousness, and think of the influence of righteousness that is abounding like wave after wave towards us. And I hope you caught my point on that. You don't look like you did, but I hope you did. Okay, let's go to the final point, and this is really what I this is what I want to pound on, and I, I, I want to pound on this so heavy and hard. I believe if you had to take the, the text and just grab it like this and just rip the life out of it, here's what we're talking about. It's this: Beware of the destructive power of pride. If, if, if God is speaking to us most clearly, I believe this is what it is. Now listen, what do you see in chapters 19, 41 through 43? Go back there and look with me. Look what it says. Look at 19, 41. The men of Israel were coming to the king and saying, why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him from his household across the Jordan together with all his men? They're just, I'm trying to read it like it was, but this is harsh, baby-type words. Now tell me if this doesn't sound like a bunch of kids, or tell me if this doesn't sound like maybe a, mar- a, a marital argument. It seemed to go hand in hand. Look at verse 42. All the men of Judah answered then, we did this because we're closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? We haven't eaten anything. What do you say? We didn't do anything. Look at all the food still here. And then look at verse 43. Then the men of Israel answered, yeah, we've got 10 shares. You've only got two. In other words, they're claiming closeness. We're claiming greater numbers. And watch this. We have a greater claim than you have. We're better than you. We're more important than you. And on and on and goes. In other words, both groups, because of pride, listen to what the Bible says, listen, only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride cometh contention. Do you have a relationship in which there is tension and conflict? It is there only because of pride, is what the Scripture says. I'm going to tell you, friends, this is so big. If you could please get this, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart as I'm talking right now, because this is crucial. You know all the church splits and problems? You know that it is not really about doctrine. Doctrine is holy, righteous, and pure. It's about immature people that you can't stand someone to disagree with them, and they start taking sides and arguing. You want to know the problems in marriage? People say it's finances, it's intimacy, it's communication. No, it's not. The reason two people who both claim the name of Christ can't get along in one household is sheerly pride, self-righteousness, exalting oneself above another person, being so easily offended. Did you notice these people? Oh, they hurt us. They didn't invite us to the party. Well, we didn't invite you because we're closer. Yeah, but you should have invited us because we're more important. Yeah, 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 yeah. This thing is serious. It goes back and forth. Friends, Matthew Henry said the perverting of words is the subverting of peace. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. One soft answer could have turned things around here. It didn't do it. No one did. Oh, listen, how... How crazy this whole thing is. Then we go to Sheba. And Sheba in one and two, what does he do? He blows the trumpet and he, he just exalts himself. David wouldn't dare exalt himself. David had Saul sleeping at his feet and wouldn't kill him twice. And here's Sheba on the spur of the moment. Everybody follow me. Leave David. And then you see Joab. What's Joab doing? Joab says, Amasa, my dear friend, how are you, old buddy? As he grabs him by the beard and kills him. Why? Because Joab wanted no rivals. It's pride. This chapter is filled with pride. Now, friends, i, I, I got to tell you, as your pastor, when was the last time you asked anyone to pray for your pride, that you would be humble? It is, the, it is the greatest problem that Christians face. Allow me to just peruse through some great quotes. The first seven or eight of these are by Spurgeon. Listen. There is nothing into which the heart of man so easily falls as pride and yet there is no vice which is more frequently, more emphatically, and more eloquently condemned in Scripture. Pride is like the flies of Egypt. All Pharaoh's soldiers could not keep them out. And I am sure all the strong resolutions and devout aspirations we may have cannot keep pride out unless the Lord God Almighty sends a strong wind of the Holy Spirit to sweep it away. Listen to this. It's a wild, strange thing to think that a man should be proud when he has nothing to be proud of. A living, animated lump of clay, defiled and filthy. A living hell and yet proud. Spurgeon had a way of telling it like it was. No matter how dear you are to God, listen to Christian, are you Christian today? Listen. No matter how dear you are to God, if pride be harbored in your spirit, he will whip it out of you. They that go up in their own estimation must come down again by his discipline. Pride is always inconsistent with the true doctrine of the gospel. You may use this test concerning any preaching or teaching that you meet with. If logically it leads a man to boast of himself, it's not true. It's so much of what I see, it breaks my heart of Christians arguing today. It's all arguing because they think they know something that brings more glory to God than someone else. Or that they they, they know something better than someone I know something you don't know, and I'm better. It's pride. When we really have come to grips with truth, that the Holy Spirit with its wings have borne into our heart and drilled down deep into us, My friends, we don't feel like we can look down on people. We feel humbled by it. And we exalt others better than ourselves. It's a crazy thing that we would take holy doctrine and put ourselves up because of it. That's not true. We haven't really gotten. Spurgeon says, Pride is always inconsistent with true doctrine of the gospel. You may use this test concerning any preaching or teaching that you meet with. If it logically leads a man to boast of himself, it's not true. Pride is the devil's dragnet in which he takes more fish than any other except procrastination. If killed, pride revives. If buried, it bursts the tomb. You may hunt down this fox and think you have destroyed it, and lo, your very exaltation is pride. Men proudly ask to be humble, that they desire to be humble in order they may be admired for their humility. The gate of heaven, though it is so wide that the greatest of sinners may enter, is nevertheless so low that pride can never pass through it. Somebody once told John Bunyan that he had preached a delightful sermon. You are too late, said John. The devil told me that before I left the pulpit. Satan is adept at teaching us how to steal our master's glory. I remember receiving a warning against pride from a Christian woman who told me that she would pray that I might be kept humble. I thanked her and told her that I would do the same for her. She said that she did not require it, for she had nothing to be proud of, and therefore she was quite sure she never would be proud. Then I told her gently but decidedly that I thought she was proud already, or else she would not have uttered such a speech as that. Chuck Colson says... It's difficult to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below. The captain of the Titanic said, as they started their voyage, the Lord God Almighty couldn't sink this ship. J.C. Ryle, in his thoughts for young men, said, Pride is the oldest sin in the world. Indeed, it was before the world. Satan and his angels fell by pride. They were not satisfied with their first situation and status. Thus, pride shocked hell with its first inhabitants. Pride threw Adam and Eve out of paradise. Adam was not content with the place God assigned him. He tried to raise himself and fell. Thus sin, sorrow, and death entered in by pride. Now listen. Pride sits in all our hearts by nature. We are born proud. Pride makes us rest content with ourselves. We think we are good enough as we are. Pride keeps us from taking advice. Pride is why we refuse the gospel of Christ. Pride turns everyone to his own way. Thomas Watson gives an eloquent terms. I'll just tell you the story. He says, let's think about Peter. What was God doing? Peter said, Lord, though everyone else forsake you, I won't. And you know what the Lord had to do with Peter? Take him down, down, down into the depths of his own failure so that he wouldn't be so self-confident. And what does Peter say the next time the Lord asks him if he loves him? He doesn't answer. you ever gotten an insight from that passage on that? Why does Peter not answer? Probably because the Lord had taken him down in such humility. You remember, he wept so bitterly over his failure. Jonathan Edwards says there's two signs of spiritual pride. Secretly, in the language of your heart, you feel that you're better than others. Your education, your money, your insight to Scripture, something makes you better. And also that you think highly of your humility. Isn't that the truth? I have. I've got to tell you, as your pastor, I thought, Lord, after this day I've had a Bible study and prayer and given myself to the ministry, You know, I've just really sedied myself and really exalted you today, haven't I? (laughs) I've had attitudes like that. I have. Pride, arrogance, self-will should mark our... No, pride, arrogance, and self-will are are our worst problem. What should mark our lives is humility. I almost read that wrong. What The first thing Jesus Christ says in his sermon... Here it is. Jesus, speak to us your greatest sermon. His greatest sermon. First words out of his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. What's a sign of the last days? A sign of the last days is this. Mark this. In the last days, men shall be lovers of themselves... Now stop and think about all you hear about self-love and self-image and all of this. I want to tell you, friends, that's not true. We don't need to love ourselves. We naturally love ourselves. Don't try to turn that great commandment, love the Lord thy God, all thy heart, soul, mind, strength, and thy neighbor as thyself, meaning that you have to love yourself. That is absolutely not correct in any way whatsoever, I tell you, as a minister of the gospel. The reason for problems in marriage, the reason for problems at work, the reason why churches split is because of pride more than anything else. I mean it. Stop and think about it. Really, you, you sit there and you think, I don't have to put up with this anymore. I don't have to live with somebody like that anymore. I'm so sick of just on down low before. You know why we all identify with Barney Fife on Mayberry? You know what? You know why we all like him? We all like him because he reveals pride in our own heart. When he talks about the maximum security cells. When he talks about him and baby, baby will do my talking for me. He uses one bullet. Sometimes Andy takes that bullet away from him, if you remember. And the whole scene is, is one painted because of that. Listen to what the Bible says. Don't be a respecter of persons, for a piece of bread a man will transgress. Don't we, we exalt ourselves. We think so highly of ourselves. We try to make sure we look right, act right, drive the right cars. We're, we're so careful. We make sure that we always present ourselves in such a fashion. We wouldn't dare let anyone see us unless we were just some certain way. That's pride. That's pride. We're going to have to fight pride till the grave. It's in everything. It ruins everything. It affects everything. Remember what William Cowper said last week in the poem? He says, even when I try to exalt Christ, even when I try to witness for Christ, pride comes in into my soul, and it leads the way it it bears its ugly head. Listen, one man said, pride and love are strangers. Why do we have so little love? Because we're strangers to humility. With humility would come love and self-giving. It's the reason for ruined relationships. Proud people hate pride in others, and pride deceives us. We think things like this, well, God can't love so-and-so after what they did. Did you hear what they did? And we're almost happy that someone fell, so we can look down on them. Watch out for people that say, well, you you know, we know those people. They're legalists, as if legalists are somehow beyond the grace and mercy of God. Or, I know them, they're Arminians. Oh, you know how God feels about Arminians. That's a rotten attitude. That's not a pleasing attitude. Or on and on it can go. I was once at a pastor's meeting. I can remember this so clearly, it's unbelievable. And obviously as a result of this this group that I was on, it was a council meeting, and there was a group of, of us that were in charge of something, and something had really gone wrong, and we were ultimately responsible, even though many of us didn't know anything about it. We were ultimately responsible, and we said, well, what are we going to do? And they went around the room, what are we going to do? And the first guy said, I wasn't on the council when that decision was made. And the next person said, well, I was on the council, but I wasn't a part of that committee. And went around the room until one guy said, I think what we need to do is we need to fall on our faces before God, ask God for forgiveness, and cry out for his mercy. You would have thought, when the guy said that, that there was an announcement made in the room that somebody had contagious, some contagious disease that it was born through the air, and everyone was about to breathe it. And before you know it, within the next couple weeks, letters were flying. I think so and so that said we should humble ourselves and confess is wrong. You're putting people on the spot. You know, the guy that headed up the committee that caused the most trouble over not wanting to humble ourselves within two years was out of the ministry for financial wrong dealings of his own? What is the answer? If I tell you, don't be proud, humble ourselves, what is the answer? And I believe this with all my heart, friends. I know this. I know some of you are going to take, I'll probably get a letter or two, somebody saying, Kim, what you said about self-love and all that, you don't really know. I tell you, friends, I will challenge you on that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to love yourself. The Bible says over and over, though, that you naturally love yourself. The Bible says your problem is not that you have a, a too low of an estimation of yourself, but that you have too high of an estimation of yourself. That's what it says over and over. And I know the world says that, but the world also says don't discipline your kids. I mean, we got to decide whether we're going to listen to the Scriptures or not. And here you need to understand clearly what the Bible says. And in this is one scene after another of proud men ruining things. What is the answer? I believe it with all my heart. The reason we have such a low view of God and so we're so proud of ourselves is because we have not really been slain by the law. Oh, if if I as your pastor could say, what kind of spiritual blessing would you have for me, pastor? If I could press any button, it would be this, that at some point in your pre-Christian experience, or maybe in God's mercy... Somehow you got a little bit of it then. So some point in your Christian experience, there would come a broken heart as you would see the holiness of God and you would see how great his law is. You can see how pure and holy it is and you see yourself before it and you go, oh, wretched man that I am, who could deliver me from this? And when you're at that state of absolute agony over the brokenness of your own heart, then suddenly you see Jesus saying, I will still save you, my friend. Read the life of Jesus Christ. Don't You you can read the life of David, and you can actually feel pretty good about yourself at times. But read the life of Jesus Christ. It'll hammer you into the ground the way you see him love and the way you see him treat people. How about the work of the Holy Spirit? It's to convict the world of sin. Here's another answer. God's going to see to it that you have trials, difficulties, heartbreaks, and even failure. You know what I believe? I believe this. God, in his mercy, has taken me on many occasions and just let me sniff out the own stench of my own rotten heart, just to get a little glimpse of it. And it's been so defeating and so discouraging, but can I tell you that he has done that to me again and again, and I believe with all of my heart it's to make me realize I am a failure without him. Have a loving, faithful friend who will cut through the muck and tell it like it is, your attitude's wrong. What you said about so-and-so is not right. Watch out. You're not thinking of it from everybody's perspective. Husbands, be humble enough that your wife can tell you the truth about yourself, and you can hear it. She probably knows it better than you do. I I know you think, no, she doesn't admire me for all my great qualities. She probably sees it like it is. You just ought to listen to her, probably. How about confession of sin? Only in America, as proud and arrogant as we are, could there be a popular teaching that says you don't need to confess your sins anymore? That is a bunch of crud. And that's a good word I can think of it. I'll close by telling you this then, friends. I, I, I love this story. I've told it to you before, but I'll tell you as we close. My favorite story about this, which really pictures it, is, is by, Erwin Lutzer told me, the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. You know what he said? His whole life, in fact, Erwin Luther's famous for his imitations of Billy Graham. And his, his whole life, there was, he, he, he grew up, he would listen to Billy Graham on the radio, and he would just imitate him and love him. And one day, Billy Graham was at Moody Church in Chicago because it was the 50th anniversary of Campus Crusade for Christ or something. And Billy Graham, Erwin Lutzer asked if Billy Graham could come to his office and talk to him. He said, yeah, I would be glad to. And he came up and, and he sat across from me and he goes, here he was, the guy I've admired and worshipped all my life. I mean, I just thought so much of him. And I said, Dr. Graham, I've just got to tell you, when everyone else was imitating Elvis, I was imitating you. He said, when everybody else was memorizing words from songs, I was memorizing your sermons. I've got several of them memorized from where you spoke at different conventions. And he says, as I was telling that to Billy Graham, he says, he got this look on his face of pain, and he looked down, and I could just tell something was wrong. And I, I thought, oh, man, it must be me. What did I say? And he says, I felt like just falling through the floor. And so I said, Dr. Graham, are you all right? And he says, Dr. Graham looked up at him with tears in his eyes and says, Dr. Lutzer, if you only knew how many times I failed my Lord, how little I have redeemed the time, how much more I could have made of Jesus Christ that I didn't. He says, you would never want to imitate me. It hurts me that anybody would want to imitate me. Irwin said he couldn't believe what he was hearing. He was just shocked at the true sense in the heart of Billy Graham. And, th- and then think of this. There's knocking at the doors. And he says, it's like having the president in your office. People are keep coming. There's CBS wants to interview him. There's a reporter from Chicago wants to interview him. All these people are. He reaches out and he tells his aides. He says, listen. He goes, um, just give me five more minutes with my friend Irwin.'" And he comes back. And Irwin's sitting behind his desk. And he kneels at Erwin's feet, puts his head on his knees, and says, Oh, Erwin, please pray. I must speak to 5,000 people tonight, and apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I can do nothing. Now, you stop and ask this. Some people don't like Billy Graham, but you ha- everyone has to admit that it has any kind of evangelical mindset whatsoever. You have to admit that the greatest evangelist in our generation, bar none, is Billy Graham. And what I want to tell you, friends, is this. Humble yourself before God, he will exalt you. Exalt yourself, you're going to be fighting God because he's going to try to humble you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that as you build a growing congregation here, that you would, in your great infinite wisdom and mercy, help us to be a humble people. Certainly we would ask you for your part, but we know you'll keep your part we ask that we would respond to the difficulties and to the trials and to the listening of the word of God and to the appreciation of the gospel so that we would be a humble people. Thank you, Father, When how clear life is when we're humble. Father, life is so confusing when we're not humble. So please help us to do that. Now, with your heads bowed, before I close this service, I'd like to offer this. If you're here today, let me ask you this question. Keep your heads bowed. Just listen to your pastor. Talk to you a second. Have you ever truly received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you ever really bowed before him and said, I am a sinner. I must have you. I cannot save myself. I don't mean where you just said some little ditty of a prayer. Has there ever been a realization in your heart that you are a mess without Christ? If so, as we have this quiet moment, would you ask Christ into your heart? Would you what I mean by that is would you believe upon him? The Bible says if you believe upon him, he would save you. Let's stand and sing. I love you Lord. That concludes today's message from the expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.